please may we make the most of it. Um, please motivate us by love for our friends and love for you. And we thank you that knowing Jesus is the most wonderful thing in life. Thank you that knowing him transforms our life now and transforms our futures to come. We pray tonight that you would open our eyes to see how the gospel of Jesus particularly impacts the way that we think about our money and use our money. And we pray, Father, that you would be changing our hearts so that we use money in ways that are good to you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Joe. Um, um, right, well, you've got a, an outline, um, fairly detailed one tonight, because uh, it's a big topic. Being wise with money. Um, <coughs> I don't know if you know this, but um, not too long ago, coal miners would take uh, little canaries down the mine uh, with them, um, and it was a, a kind of a rudimentary early warning system uh, of danger in the mine because the birds are particularly sensitive to methane exposure and if there was gas in the mine the bird would drop off its perch dead and uh, that was a warning sign I said it was rudimentary um, that was a warning sign that there's gas in the mine we'd rather have a canary die than the miners so the canary drops dead and the miners uh, flee and save themselves and the subject of money in the Bible, I want to suggest, is what you might call a canary subject. It's a, it's a sign, it's a warning sign for us. Uh, in and of itself, to answer Joe's question, uh, I think money is morally neutral in the Bible. It's neither good nor bad. In fact, it's kind of unimportant in the Bible. Uh, money, if you think about it, is just money. Um, it's like a lot of things in God's world. It, it doesn't have a, a moral aspect to itself, it is the human aspect that makes money either good or bad. It's what we do with it. Money itself enables the world to function. You've heard the phrase, you know, money makes the world go around. It enables trade to happen. Um, but at the end of the day, money is just bits of paper uh, or figures on a coin or more commonly, I suppose, these days, pixels on a screen. But what the Bible does have an awful lot to say about is the way we handle money in our lives, in our hands, and above all, in our hearts. And that re for that reason, money is tremendously important in the Bible. And I want to suggest that nothing really gives us a clearer indication of our grasp of the gospel than the way we handle money. So it really does matter. Um, Martin Luther famously said that there are three stages to a person's conversion. First, their heart, then their mind, and finally, their wallet. It just sort of underlines, doesn't it, how important it is. And what he means by that is, if you look at someone's attitude to money, you can actually see if they're fully converted. We can see if they have really grasped the gospel. So it's a tremendously important subject. But it's not about rules. This is why I've called the talk Being Wise with Money. See, part of us, I think, when we come to a subject like this, we're longing for some rules, some do's and don'ts. We're longing for concrete answers. How much should we give away? How much should we keep? How much is right to earn? How much should we have in the bank account? How much is right to spend on that house, the holidays, the savings, the meal out, and how much is wrong? We want those kind of black and white answers. What causes should I give to and what should I prioritize? Uh, is it everyone who asks should I give? Is that what generosity is or is it just certain causes? If only we had a nice percentage that we could give, like a kind of a Christian tax. 
If only there was this kind of number we could find in the Bible and say, well, as long as we're giving that, we are godly. And if we give less than that, we're ungodly. And if we give more than that, we're extra godly. We're longing for rules. The problem is the Christian life is not about rules. It's about revolutionizing every area of life. And that means we've got to think about Jesus and your money. And this is what we're seeking to do every week in this series. To become a Christian is not to add a kind of a spiritual dimension to your life, the rest remaining as it is. To be Christian is to rethink every part of life fundamentally from the ground up. Every part of our lives need to be reordered around the gospel. And particularly, we need to understand that gospel of grace that Joe mentioned and that we sang about is the thing that is going to change us radically, change us completely in every area of life. And so what we're going to do now is draw a line from that gracious gospel of Jesus to the actual hard stuff in our wallets or on our phones or however it is that you spend uh, your money. So firstly, money is good. We see this in how we get money and how we use it. And we'll go to the book of Proverbs mainly to see this. Firstly, how we get it. The way we are to get money, generally, is to work hard. Remember the sluggard? Anyone had that image in their mind since last week as you've been sort of resetting the alarm and putting the snooze button on and you tell yourself, I'm just like that door flapping on its hinges? It's a terrible image, isn't it? Well, here is the sluggard again. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, one more snooze button, that's my version of the translation, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. So wisdom is living within God's order. And generally speaking, if you are prepared to work hard, you will have enough to live on. And generally speaking, the harder you work, the more money you will have. And that's a good thing. The inverse of that is, generally speaking, laziness leads to poverty. Look how clear it is in Proverbs 10, verse 15. The wealth, uh, sorry, Proverbs 10, verse 4. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's it. In one sense, it's that simple. Do you want to be poor? Then work hard, generally speaking. But money is also good in the Bible because of how we can use it. Money is good because it can protect us against poverty, which is a bad thing in the Bible. Proverbs 10, 15, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is a ruin of the poor. It's important to say that the Bible is against poverty. There have been times in Christian history when Christians have almost made a, a requirement of godliness to be poor, a mark of true spirituality, but the Bible doesn't speak like that. Poverty, and I, I don't mean just you know, having one car or having to share a pony with your friend down the road, I mean real poverty, is a terrible thing and it is to be avoided. And the measure of security, a measure of security against poverty is a good thing. But much more importantly, and the Bible stresses this much more, is that money enables you to be kind. Money is a good thing because it enables you to actually have the power to help other people. So 11.16, a kind-hearted woman gains respect, but ruthless men gain only wealth. 11.25, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. 11.26, people curse the man who holds grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. 
14.31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. And 19.17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Isn't that an amazing image? That you can, you can lend to God. I mean, God doesn't, <laughs> everything belongs to God. But you can lend to God, in a sense, by being kind to the poor. And so part of the goodness of money in the Bible is that we can use it amazingly to worship God. I don't know how you spend money, is it your Revolut app or your banking app or whatever? And perhaps one or two of us occasionally have those good old fashioned paper notes in our pockets. But the remarkable thing is we can, we can use that as a way of worshiping God, as a way of caring for people and furthering God's purposes in the world. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? So here's the first lesson then, money is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It is the God-given result of hard work and it can do good in God's world. And poverty is not good. Christians therefore should not be embarrassed about money as if it itself is innately dirty or sinful. God gives us money and we can use it for his glory. So what's the problem? Well, over the page, the problem, as always, is with our sinful hearts. And that's why we, we need to come to the second truth that money is good, but money is not God. It should be obvious from what we said already that God is the creator. He gives us money and therefore money is not God. But it is amazing how money, perhaps more than anything else in this world, takes the place of God in people's hearts. See, does that sound a bit far-fetched? No one actually goes to Las Vegas and bow, well maybe they do, anything's possible in Las Vegas, but no one actually goes and bows down to a statue of money and calls it God, of course not. But millions and billions of people live as if money is God, they live with money as God. Because think about it, what, what would people give up to get money? Well, people give anything up to get money. People kill for money, people sacrifice their reputation, their conscience, people give up everything to get money. And what would you give money for? Well, those two questions tell you that money is God for many, many people. And I think we can easily give to money the devotion, the trust, the loyalty, the commitment, the worship that we should only give to, to God. And again, the book of Proverbs tells us how this happens in three steps. Firstly, it deceives us. Wisdom teaches us that while poverty is to be avoided, it is not to be avoided at all costs. There are many things that are worse than poverty. And the security that money brings against poverty is a deception. 11 verse, uh, 18 verse 11. The wealth of their rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. See, money brings great security, a sense of security, doesn't it? And that is a spiritual danger. The rich are pictured here in the proverb as this kind of a city with great walls around it. And the purpose of the wall, like the city we saw in 2 Samuel 20 this morning, the purpose is to protect the inhabitants from harm. Enemies, robber, fire, flood and other calamities. And we can so easily think of money like that, can't we? The, the number in your bank account, the inheritance that you're going to get, the ISA that your parents have put away, the little pension pot, whatever it is, whatever stage you're at, <coughs> even that money in the, <coughs> the good old-fashioned piggy bank, the health insurance, the equity in the house, or whatever it is, 
it can very quickly give you this sense of invincibility that you are secure, you're cushioned from the bad things that can happen to you. Because yeah, you might get sick, you might lose your job, but that's okay because you've got this insurance. You think if I've got money, I'll be all right. And the proverb says, this is an imagination, this is a deception. And this is why money often goes hand in hand with pride. The wealthy are often the arrogant because they think that nothing can, nothing can damage them. They think they're an unscalable wall. And this is the first step in that idolatry of money because we give to money the trust that we should only give to God. And you can't do both. You will either trust God or money. You can't do both. But in the end, this security is a deception. Proverbs 23, 4. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Has the, have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they'll surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Security of money is so alluring, isn't it? You cannot rely on money, though. This is why stock markets crash. Exchange rates shift, house prices fall, share prices collapse, the, even the gold gets stolen. There is nothing, nowhere in this world where you can find that security. Nowhere. And current climate in our economy just proves that, doesn't it? It deceives us. Secondly, it robs us. Once you start reading the Bible, although I've said that poverty is bad, there are many things that are worse than poverty. And there are many, many things better than money that money can't buy. So wisdom is better, Proverbs 15, 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver. Relationships are better. Proverbs 15, 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. That is not an advert for vegetarianism. Can you see that? Just the opposite. But it's a great one for families who are struggling financially, looking over the fence at the neighbours with their big TV and their shiny car and their exotic holidays, but are always arguing. If you have loving relationships, you are, you are rich. 17.1, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. It's a great proverb for parents whose children don't have the latest iPhone, the latest Nintendo, whatever it is. But they have a happy family. They have a, a, an intact marriage with parents who still love each other. Relationships are more powerful, uh, valuable than wealth. A good character is better. 19 verse 1. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. 19.22. What a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. And 22.1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. There are much worse things than being poor in God's world. If we treat money as God, it will rob us of the things that really matter, the things that are really precious, and the things that last. Money can build a house, but not a home. It can buy pleasure, but not happiness. It can buy friends, but not love. It can give you power, but not character. And give you education but not wisdom and money is a terrible god therefore and so why devote your life to, to the pursuit of money the proverbs is saying because you'll miss out and what money tempts us to buy comfort status pleasure are the things that will pass away in a moment
If you devote yourself to the pursuit of these things, you will miss out on the other. Character, wisdom, security, relationships, and so on. It's a choice, isn't it? And so thirdly, it destroys us. 11 verse 4, wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. See, money is a God that will let you down in the end because of what is to come in the future. And the proverb picks up this theme in the Bible of the day of wrath, the day of accountability, the day of reckoning, where your life will be assessed before God where the consequences of your choices are, are laid bare. And then, then we'll see, if you've trusted in money, what a terrible choice that was. What a terrible God to choose. Because then the only thing that will matter was the, is the one thing money can't buy, righteousness, faith. That's what will deliver on the day of wrath. That is more valuable than anything. So money is good, but it is not God. And you've seen there some real dangers, haven't you? How then do we avoid the idolatry of trusting in money? Well, over the page, money in Jesus. The answer may be surprising. The answer the New Testament gives us to that question, how do we avoid this, is actually a very practical one, but it, it is deeply embedded in the gospel. The answer is to practice gospel generosity. That is the answer. That is how we save ourselves from the idolatry of money. Cheerful, sacrificial, trusting generosity is the antidote to money's grip on our hearts. So I wonder if you turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter eight. That's the passage we're gonna look at uh, to consider money and Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Someone shout a page number out, that'd be great. 1162. Mr. Noller is always fast on the gun. <laughs> Thanks. 2 Corinthians 8. Now, just before we read a few uh, verses, a um, bit of context, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, but he's talking about the Macedonians, okay? Different part of the world, different part of sort of Greece. Corinthian church is his uh, audience but he's talking about the Macedonian churches. And the other thing we need to know is the Macedonians were dirt poor compared to the Corinthians. So you can see that that's in the background. So verse one, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints and they did not do as we expected but they gave themselves first to the lord and then to us in keeping with god's will paul is uh, trying to sort of shame i suppose is, is, is the proper word to try to shame the corinthians into generosity by showing them the example of the macedonians now notice that Paul does not begin by referring to the generosity of the Macedonian churches, but with the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. This is a surprise. You might think that the Macedonian generosity to the Jewish churches was God's grace to those churches. Paul says the Macedonian church's generosity was God's grace to them. Can you see that? In other words, 
God has been generous to the Macedonian Christians in making them generous. This is counterintuitive, isn't it? See, we naturally think if someone is being generous to someone else, it's the recipient of the generosity that is receiving grace and kindness. But Paul says, no, it's the giver of the generosity that is receiving the grace and kindness from God. How does that make sense? It is counterintuitive. It is meant to flip our brains a little bit. Well, think about it. Who is the most generous person in the universe? God, of course. How do we know that? Well, lots of ways we know that. We know that because of the fecundity of the created world. Stick that in your essay this week, that word. It'll give you a little buzz, you know, fecundity, the generosity. People in this day and age like to talk about diversity, but fecundity is the theological word for diversity. Let me give you an example. Did you know? You, you'll know this already. If you live in France, you can eat a different cheese for every day of the week. There are 365 different cheeses. Did you know that you can eat a different variety of apple that is grown in England, different variety, different species of apple, different taste, different flavour, different history, different pedigree, different texture, etc. Not just every day of the year, but every year, every day for 5,000 days. There are 5,000 named varieties of apples. In fact, people think there are 10,000, and there is this work going on in this laboratory to kind of prove that. There you go, 5,000 different apples. You can have a different apple every day. There's sort of something I just learned recently. So who is the most generous person in the world? Well, God. You see it in creation. He didn't need to give us 10,000 apples, just in England. Could have given, I mean, I'm glad we don't have to live on uh, Granny Smith's and Golden Delicious, because um, they're pretty, you know, ropey. Um, <laughs> Sorry if you love those, but God has given us a superabundance of generosity. But you know how God is really known to be generous? Well, look at verse 9. Not apples. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The reason we know God is generous is because he has given the most valuable thing in the universe to the people who least deserved it. He's not just given us apples, he's given us his son, the most valuable object in the universe to those who least deserved it. He's flipped the switch so that the poor, that is the spiritually poor, have become rich, and the rich, that is Jesus, have become poor, very poor, because there's no one poorer than a man hanging naked on a cross. So. Can you see how that means that if the Macedonians are generous, they they are blessed. It's because they're becoming a little bit like God. So if you are someone who finds that your heart has been changed so that you can give, you can be generous, then lucky you because you are a little bit more like God. You're a little bit more in line with the person who rules this universe. And this is why the Macedonians pleaded for the privilege of giving generously, even when they had so little themselves. They didn't wait till they had money to spare. They didn't come up with the excuse that the other people were better off. Why couldn't they give first? They didn't worry about what they'd have left to live on. They pleaded with the opportunity because they wanted to be like God. They saw it as a joy and they gave voluntarily in an organized way. And Paul says that is the grace of God. Because only God can work that kind of generosity in people. 
Anybody can go and shake a tin in outside Wilco's and get people putting in 50p's. Anyone can do that. Anyone can guilt you. You know when you go to Wilco's and they, they say, would you like to give you know, 5p or 5% whatever to charity? And I've got, I've got 10 reasons why I say no to that. And um, I can tell you over, over supper if you want, but I, I, they never want to know my reasons. Anyone can guilt you into giving a few pence. Anyone can raise 23 million pounds through children in need by having Matt Baker, you know, make us all feel just desperately sorry for all these children, of course. But only God can work that kind of generosity where the poorest of the poor are pleading for the opportunity to give. And that's why Jesus says in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because when we give, with Christ as a model, we are becoming a little bit more like God. In fact, we're knowing God a little bit better. So let me conclude then with some implications, money and you. Firstly, giving and the gospel. If you're listening to this and you're not yet a convinced follower of Jesus, I hope you've heard very, very clearly this evening and every evening uh, in this series, that what we do is not how we become Christian, but it's a response to the grace of the gospel. In Jesus, his sacrificial death for the forgiveness of our sins has made us rich beyond our wildest imaginations. And it's from that that our, our lives become transformed and we can do all sorts of acts of service. Not because we're trying to please God, but because he is making us like his son. And therefore, giving is one, not the only one, but one indicator of our grasp of the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you understand grace, if you understand how rich God has made you, then you'll be someone who loves to give. And you'll be growing just gradually, not overnight, but you'll be gradually growing in that grace of giving as you understand the gospel more and more and more. But if you find that you really hate giving, you really cannot be generous, you really see everything you own as yours, it's a canary in the mine. It's the canary. And it's telling you there's a danger in your heart and you need to go back to the gospel and ponder it again. Look at Christ. Let the gospel teach you how to give. Secondly, generosity and greed. Greed is a terrible trap. Greed is spiritually dangerous and destructive as we've seen because it replaces our trust in God with trust in something else. And if you let greed take over your life, it will actually lead you to hell. It is a terrible thing. And you might want to, if you're interested, just, just search the word greed in the New Testament and see how many times it's mentioned alongside a list of other terrible sins. But I mentioned to Joe on the podcast that we did last week um, in a different context. It's interesting, isn't it, how greed is such a blind spot for us. that As a pastor, I've had people confess all sorts of sins to me. But you know, in 20 years of full-time Christian ministry, no one has ever said, I wanna to talk to you about my greed. No one's ever said that. Can't remember ever anyone saying that. And I think what that tells me is it's a blind spot in our culture. It's something we're not aware of. We don't realize that we're in danger here. Remember all those things that we saw cannot be bought for money and are thus fortified forfeited if we make money our God, love, peace, harmonious relationships, ultimate eternal security. Money promises by, money deceives by promising what it cannot deliver, 
But God gives us true life now by the blood of Jesus. So beware of greed. And when we know God himself in the gospel, we know what it's like to be generous. And therefore wisdom about money means we start being more like God. It means a completely transformed attitude to money and possessions. And that's why I said there isn't a number. It's not just 10%. That's an Old Testament thing. We're now in the New Testament. We're now in the gospel age. So if we trust God, who serves his perfect freedom, then we'll be free to be generous. And this giving will become a joy to the person who trusts God. We'll make decisions that actually disadvantage ourselves in the world. We'll be prepared not to always have the latest gadgets. We'll be prepared to forego what others have for the sake of the kingdom. We may even take this so far as to disadvantage us ourselves in terms of our career and opportunities like that. Well, this is what it takes. This is what happens when we submit to Jesus. Thirdly then, and finally, generosity in practice. Well, let's get really practical. What does it look like in practice? Firstly, Christians, if we apply this, will need to give sacrificially. People often will know, how much shall I give? And that simple, neat answer of 10%, the tithe, it won't do. The Pharisees ask, how much shall I give? And then they keep the rest for themselves. Can you see that's not generous? The Christian, meanwhile, is not motivated by guilt or by rules, but the generosity of God and the gospel. And therefore, the question changes from what must I give to what can I give? And so percentages are a useless guide, really. For some people, 10% might be an enormous thing to aim for. I think probably for, for students who are by nature, well not by nature, but by circumstances indebted, living in debt, because you're, you're living in borrowed money and so on, for, for, for some people in your student situation, 10% is going to be a, a thing to aim for, a thing to aspire for perhaps, and put other people in circumstances. But for someone else, 10% will be measly. 10% will be nowhere near generous if you think about what they earn. And a helpful person to think about is the widow in Mark 10, 12. Gave away her two tiny, tiny little coins. And Jesus looked at her and said, she gave more than all the rich people together. Because it's not about how much you give, it's about what a sacrifice it is. So if you've still got 2 Corinthians 8 open, look at verse 2. Out of their most severe trial, they, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they're able and even beyond their ability. If I'm going to give you a rule, the rule is this, that giving will hurt. Giving generously, sacrificially, it will cost you something. And therefore, there's no point in waiting until you feel wealthy enough to give. The widow would never have done that, would she? No one actually ever thinks they've got enough money to be generous. And that's why the Macedonians are such good models, because they gave out of their poverty. So you might not have much, but you can still be generous. It's not the amount that matters, it's the sacrificial generosity at its heart. Secondly, give thoughtfully. Give thoughtfully. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had early made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. These verses tell us something. Paul is raising money for these uh, Jewish Christians. And these verses tell us that it's carefully planned. And he wants them to complete the plan. 
And that means that Christians ought to be people who, who actually think about their giving and don't just kind of respond to any need that comes their way, but actually think and consider about what we're going to give. So, for example, you don't have to live according to your means. Because everybody around you buys that Costa coffee and sandwich every day, you don't have to do that. Stop and think. Think about how it adds up. I, I uh, actually Googled it because I never go to Costa. And apparently their most expensive coffee now is six pounds. I mean, and, and it's like 6,000 calories. You would not need to eat for a week. So maybe it's good value. But a flat white, I'm told, is three pounds. A sandwich, a little bit more. So, so I did the math. So if you did one of those every day for a week in university term time, you'd have spent 780 pounds. Add a, a small sandwich, 1,300 pounds by the end of the year. Now you're free to do that. Please don't go and say the pastor of Wallens says don't go to Costa. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying think. Think about what you're spending. Don't just be like the world where you just kind of do things because that's what you do. See, you could buy a thermos flask, an AeroPress for £50, have a lovely cup of coffee every day and save that money, £780, and give it to a better need, better cause. You don't have to increase your lifestyle when income increases. We don't have to live as the world lives. We can think. And giving thoughtfully, I think, means generally speaking, you're going to direct your Christian giving for the most of your life to your local church as the first need. See, many Christians, uh, we'll come back to that in a minute, but many Christians underestimate what is needed to support the work of a church and feel that a, a tiny fraction will do, a little kind of few coins in the plate. But look at this bar, bar chart. This is um, the bar chart of our church's giving. And you can see how it's kind of split. You can see that you know, some people have a, a little amount to give and that's fine, they're getting into it. And as you go through the bar charts, you might be surprised how many people are giving at those extraordinary high amounts, which is why we can afford to do the things that we do. Why we can afford a staff team of, of, of 10 or so people to do the work of ministry. Why we can afford to, to give money away to uh, different causes around the world. And so I'm showing you that, not to kind of make you think, well, you know, well I'm not giving very much. No, if you're in that bottom zone, that's great. But to think, actually, as my income increases, as I get that promotion, as, as, as you know, in the normal course of life, if you're going to pursue that kind of job, then actually, I need to keep on thinking about how to be generous. Okay, thanks, Chloe, you can get rid of that. And keep on asking, what can I do to increase my giving? Thirdly, give purposefully. And this is where we give. And I think in the first instance, it will normally mean directing our giving to the local church, which pays for the ministry that we are benefiting from in church, but also our church, if you think about it, your church is our mission field, isn't it? It's the center of our mission. It's where we're engaged in ministry. See, there are many, many good causes around, secular and Christian. Lots of charities doing lots of good work, lots of human needs, and I'm not gonna stand here and say, do not give to them. Don't give to the Samaritans, don't give to Oxfam, whatever, I'm not gonna say that. But I'm just going to ask you to think about it. Who are the people who are going to give to the Christian causes? And so I want to suggest that as a, as a habit, as a lifetime habit, there'll be all sorts of good causes that come your way, but make it your practice, your policy, your strategy to give first and foremost to your own church, 
and then let the church distribute that money as part of our mission. Therefore, think about the purpose for which you give. Look around you and see what it pays for. Staff team, events, equipment, enabling lots of people to hear the gospel in all sorts of different ways. And therefore, giving is part of our gospel partnership together. It's a very practical, proactive thing. It's not like paying a subscription to a club. It's more like pooling our resources as a team so we can get more done. So if you give to a church, it's a very practical way of partnering. And then I want to encourage you just to, just to sow a seed of a thought, which I want you to kind of keep hold of for a few years. When you leave university and graduate and get a job and you find you actually do have money, and perhaps you move away from Lancaster, consider continuing to support us here because we work on the assumption that actually you're going to get far more out of the student work than you're going to put in financially. And actually it might be interesting for you to know that our student work is, is partly financed by alumni graduates elsewhere around the world. So think about that now uh, when you graduate. And then finally, we need to learn to give gen uh, gen uh, 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 cheerfully. I couldn't think of the word, cheerfully. Um, have a look, if you've got it open, at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, where Paul continues his, his long argument about money here. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We reap what we sow. Does that mean if I'm really generous, God's going to give me a you know, Rolls Royce? No. It means he's going to enable me to continue to be generous as I practice generosity. But what is guaranteed is a spiritual harvest. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's really interesting, isn't it? Way to conclude the argument. Paul says actually, you know what the blessing is? If you're generous, you're going to sow and God is going to give you something. What is he going to give you? Verse 11, he's going to give you the opportunity to be more generous. He's going to give you a spiritual harvest that results in thanksgiving to God. And that is why it's more blessed to give than receive. And this doesn't just apply to money, it applies to everything. It is more blessed to give than receive because we're exercising the grace of God and becoming like him. So let me sum up. Money is neutral, morally neutral, but it's the canary in the mind and so it's one of the best indicators of how we have grasped the gospel. And the number one thing God wants for us to do with money is to be generous. Generosity is actually the antidote to idolatry. It's going to protect us from idolatry. It's very, very practical. If you want to know what generosity looks like, look at the cross. Because in the cross of Christ, God gives himself the most generous act in the history of the world. And if you have accessed the, God, the grace of God in the cross, then your heart will change 
and you'll become a generous person. And you'll stop saying, what must I give to a joyful, what can I give? And when you see that change, rejoice, because it means God has been at work in your heart.